Brethren, I invite you to turn back again in your copy of the Scriptures to Colossians chapter 1. We're at the end of the chapter. Text today is verses 24 through 29. However, I'll begin my reading at verse 21. Again, our text is 24 through 29, but I'll begin reading at verse 21. Here once again the very Word of God. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me from your, for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past, hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of, the, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would illumine our minds and hearts from this passage to understand the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also, Father, to understand that persecution, as Paul was enduring at that time he wrote these words, is part of your plan, your purposes, your holy decree. And so, Father, help us to follow after the example of our Savior. And Father, we also pray that we too would be ministers of the gospel as Paul was, proclaiming that good news to men. Not being afraid of men, but rather, Father, being compassionate for their souls. Lost souls. Men and women who are walking toward eternal destruction. And Father, help us to be agents of good news to them, sharing with them the gospel that has quickened our souls unto life, that their souls too might be quickened. And we ask these things in the precious name of our dear Savior. Amen. Brethren, I did read from the New American Standard Bible that portion of our text today, as I think that that passage is better uh, that the New American Standard Bible gives a better rendition for us, and I'll be using uh, the New American Standard rendition throughout the sermon today. Well, as we conclude the first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul reminds us that a price is paid for living out our faith before men. A price is paid for living out our faith before men. To Paul, 
To him it was a small price, but nevertheless a price that was evidenced in persecution. He was under house arrest in Rome for having appealed to Caesar in one of his many trials. You may recall that in Acts 20, verse 16, the Apostle Paul desired to travel to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, but the Ephesian elders had concerned of him going there for fear that he would be arrested and possibly put to death. In chapters 24 through 26 of Acts, Luke records the trial of Paul before Felix, and then Festus, and then finally Agrippa. These three were different magistrates in differing degrees, uh, uh, Felix and Festus holding the same uh, 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 position as governor over Israel, Agrippa being a king over a, a, a larger area, but these three men, Paul would come before uh, to be heard for crimes. Much like our day, and Tom Kidd will attest to this, justice was not swift in the days of Jesus or in the days of Paul. It was not swift. It, actually, in Jesus' case, it was very swift, but it wasn't just. In the days of Paul, it wasn't swift at all. Several years had passed since Paul had been at the temple in Jerusalem, where he was falsely accused of sedition. In the course of the false accusation, under which the Jews wanted to execute Paul for blasphemy, Paul first appealed to his Roman citizenship and then later to Caesar himself to adjudicate his trial. It was Festus who had inherited this court case from Felix, the previous governor of Israel. Felix, the consummate politician, wanted to appease the Jews and had kept Paul in prison for for more than two years without rendering a verdict. When Festus became governor following Felix, he inherited this case because Felix had no stomach to make a decision. Festus then reviews the case. Paul has since gone to Caesarea where he's imprisoned. Festus is there, reviews the case, and decides he needs to go to Jerusalem to hear from the the leaders of Israel about Paul. The high priest asks that Paul be returned to Jerusalem and be tried there. Festus returns then to Caesarea and has a short hearing with Paul and decided that Paul had committed no crimes worthy of imprisonment. However, he is no doubt concerned that if he releases Paul, the Jews will become enraged. So he asks Paul if he would willingly return to Jerusalem to face his accusers. Paul instead, knowing Roman jurisprudence, appeals his case to the court of Caesar Augustus. Paul, we don't know if Paul feared for his life. I doubt it because every indication was that he was ready to die for the gospel. Even in the book of Acts, he speaks that to the leaders of Israel and to his Roman captors. Well, Festus, not wanting to make an error decides to wait and have King Agrippa hear Paul's case during his upcoming scheduled visit. So King Agrippa is his superior, the superior of Festus. He's already planning to come visit Festus. Festus says, okay, I'm not going to require Paul to go back to Jerusalem as yet. I want to hear from Agrippa, see what he thinks about this circumstance. 
Upon the arrival of Agrippa, Paul's case is heard yet a third time, and King Agrippa makes that famous statement found in Acts 26, 28, when he says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Luke then records the following. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. He's doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here's the circumstance. He's been tried three times. Finally, Agrippa, who has some significant authority, says to the governor, of, uh, the then governor, Festus, look, this man has done nothing requiring imprisonment or death. And had he not appealed to Caesar, he would likely have been set free. Paul indeed had made an appeal to the highest court for a Roman citizen. It was possible that he might have been set free, but in the providences of God, Paul would stand before Caesar. Brethren, this is a profound example of God's providential handiwork. And why do I say that? Well, in Acts 9, 15 through 16, 16 when Paul was converted on the road to, to uh, uh, Damascus, right? Thank you. <laughs> At a senior moment there for a minute. I was, had a birthday this week, so that was appropriate to have a senior moment. Okay, uh, he was, it had been prophesied in Acts 9, 15 through 16, that Paul would indeed go before kings to testify for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's already testified to Agrippa in this third trial, and he's scheduled to testify to Caesar himself. God had prophesied this already. He could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar's court, but he did. And so now he's, he, he makes this journey uh, to Rome where he's under house arrest. And of course, it's a famous journey where there was a shipwreck and all of this, and he, he, he helped preserve the lives of the sailors on the boat that he was on. And it's a fascinating story at the end of the book of Acts. Um, it would make an absolute great movie. It really would. It's so compelling uh, what he does. But anyway, um, he's, he's in Rome and he is fulfilling the very prophecies that God had made about him in Acts chapter 9. It is while in Rome the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. I've rehearsed all this because it gives us the context in which Paul writes our text today. So let's read from verse 24 again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh do I, share, or, uh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Notice that he keeps talking about their benefit. And he has never visited this church. He's going to benefit the people of God at Colossae by his ministry, and yet he's never going to see those people. And never has. 
so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You Gentiles had no idea the benefits of the gospel, The Jews had some idea because they had the Old Covenant, which pointed to Christ. You had none of this, but now you have it because of God's handiwork. And he's explaining this great benefit, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. So from this passage, we're going to consider three particular subjects mentioned by Paul. First, the nature of suffering for Christ. Second, the mystery of Christ being the hope of glory for Gentiles. And third, the proclamation of that mystery. Now you may think all of this went as introduction to what I've just I'm about to say, the answer is yes, but I'm going to quickly pass through this, the remainder of this information. I'm not going to spend a long time on it. So let's first deal with the nature of suffering for Christ. The Apostle Paul in verse 24 makes a comment that is astonishing. It's astonishing. Here again is words. Focus. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is likening his sufferings to that of our Savior and adds to that this phrase, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Brethren, is it possible that Christ's afflictions lacked anything? His afflictions, did they lack anything? Whether sufficiency to expiate our sins, or were his sufferings insufficient to reach to the very last of the elect who God the Father decreed would be saved? In other words, were his sufferings insufficient to redeem men, or or did they not reach far enough to all men who God had decreed would be the elect? What's lacking here? Because Paul is saying, my ministry is filling up what's lacking. Furthermore, how could a mere man, Paul, merit what the God-man, Jesus Christ, would pay as ransom for our souls? Is it possible that Paul would even have the righteousness to bring about any meritorious uh, uh, effort before God himself? In short, how could Paul add one minutia to the salvation wrought by Jesus Christ? That's the question I think we have to ask. This is where careful interpretation of of a passage must be aligned with the breadth of other portions of God's revelation. Scripture must interpret Scripture for us at all times, and it's very important on this particular passage. Now, the questions I've posed focused on whether the sufferings of Christ were sufficient of themselves to purchase our redemption. But could Paul be asserting a different focus when he poses this statement? 
I believe he is. Let's consider two other passages for the purposes of clarity, which I think will help us interpret this properly. The first passage would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. It's a very short verse. It reads, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now this is a theme that is throughout Paul's writings. Uh, In many of his letters to the churches, he asserts over and over that the church collectively or corporately is the body of Christ. Here in 1 Corinthians 12.12, we have a clear statement of equivalency. This one body is also Christ. Collectively, we are the body of Christ. Then if we look at Romans 8.28 and 29, we read these words. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So those whom he foreknew, that God foreknew, and called into repentance and called to to faith, these he predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, earlier, when we just before we read the Ten Commandments, uh, Elder Fout mentioned that God wants us to be conformed to Him in holiness, and He He focused our attention on the holiness of the Ten Commandments. This is who God is, and we are to be conformed. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, twenty-eight and twenty-nine, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul asserts that those who are called unto salvation are predestined to be conformed to God's, uh, Jesus' image, that Jesus might be the firstborn of, many, firstborn of many brethren. This is important, and I'll get to it in just a moment. But first, let's ask a question. Does this not mean we shall be conformed to Christ in all ways? Meaning, are we so, is there any way that we're not to be conformed to the image of Christ? I would say no. Are we to be conformed to his sufferings? I would say yes. Peter makes this argument. The Apostle John makes this argument. James does as well in his short epistle. Paul does several places. But we are to be conformed to the image of the Son, including his sufferings. If we do not suffer for the sake of the gospel, Jesus would be alone among the brethren, would he not? If the church did not suffer persecution, ridicule, all the things that Jesus suffered, if we we didn't suffer those things, how would Jesus be the firstborn among many brethren? How would he be the initiatory one in, in his body, the church, absent that? absent that kind of suffering. In fact, we would not be his brethren if we do not share in all that he was and did, according to these verses in Romans. We've been predestined to be conformed to his image, which includes suffering. Paul is not saying Jesus' act of redemption were insufficient, as I posed earlier, questions regarding that. 
He is saying that God the Father's predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that, necessar- and that necessarily includes our suffering for the sake of the gospel. Just as Jesus was ridiculed and scorned for the sake of the gospel, we should rejoice when we are ridiculed and scorned for the gospel. It is then that we know we are being conformed to his image in obedience to the decree of the Father. If we suffer the way Jesus suffered, we know that we are sons of God. If we don't suffer that way, you need to question yourself. Is my faith real? Is my faith real? We are filling up the sufferings of Christ as God the Father ordained that we should participate in them as his brethren, the body of Christ. That's what Paul's referring to here. He's not adding to the salvific work of Christ. He's saying we're, follow, we're completing the decree of the Father that we would bear his image in ourselves. Bear the image of God in ourselves. Now this is going to be really important for this next point that Paul makes. Paul then turns his attention specifically to the mystery of the gospel being the hope of glory for the Gentiles. Verse 25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery to the Gentiles. How would the Gentiles ever know about Christ absent somebody telling them? They would remain ignorant, dead in their trespasses and sin. But God said when he sent his son, I am bringing bringing this man into the world to unite all peoples into my kingdom. Gentiles and Jews both. In verses 25 and through 27 here, Paul speaks of his mystery of one that explains, excuse me, speaks of his ministry of one that explains the mystery of the ages. This is the mystery of the ages. How can men be reconciled to God? That's the mystery. The Jews should have known that from Abraham. By faith, Abraham believed God, right? And it was accounted to him as righteousness. Paul writes this in Romans as well, but it, be, it, it first appears in the Old Covenant, in the book of Genesis. By faith. So the Jews should have known that. But the Gentiles had no idea. Unless it's revealed to them. Somebody's got to do that revealing. Paul says, I was called to that ministry. That was my job. That is my job. And I'm doing my job. So what is the mystery? The mystery is that man can be reconciled to God through the God-man Jesus Christ. This is the hope of all men, brethren. This is the hope of all men if they have any hope at all. For you see, not all men have hope. I'll get to that in a minute. This hope is realized when Christ is in us, 
Paul says, the hope of glory, when Christ is in us. Now this raises another perplexing question. How does a person have another person in himself? In other words, how does one have another person abiding in him? How is that possible? I'm not talking about the psychological notions of multiple personalities. That's not what I'm talking about here. But Paul says, our hope is that Christ is in us. That's the hope of glory. That's the thing we should cling to. But it makes no sense, does it, to the natural man? How is it that one man can be a, have another man in him? Is that possible? Going back to the account of Paul before Festus and Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul reveals this very mystery to those two men, Festus and Agrippa. Consider their responses. Festus says with a loud voice, the scriptures record, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Well, that would be appropriate from a natural man, right? You're telling me madness. You're telling me madness. That that man died for my sins? That's madness. Agrippa responds this way. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, all of this happened within the course of a few minutes. Festus said, you're you're a madman. Agrippa says, There's something compelling about what you're saying. This should be instructive to us, brethren. Not all men respond the same to the gospel. There's still yet a third kind of response to the gospel, is there not? I am fully persuaded of what you're saying. I am fully persuaded of what you're saying. But all Paul's job was to proclaim. That was his job. As I've said, there's a compelling argument in the gospel. Sinful men cannot please God unto salvation. No amount of good deeds can merit eternal life. But salvation can be had because it was purchased in the person of Jesus Christ. It's been purchased with his meritorious death on the cross. And Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 5. For when we were still yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If we were reconciled through His death, we will share not only in that, that reconciliation, that act of reconciliation, how much more, Paul says, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? And here's the conformity into the image of Christ. He who rose from the dead on the third day, we rise with Him to eternal life. We are conformed to His image of eternal life in His resurrection. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we now have received 
the reconciliation. Romans 5, 6-11. through 11. Here Paul asserts that mankind must embrace the shedding of Christ's blood for the remission of sin and reconciliation if man is going to inherit the glories of God. And brethren, this gives us clarity in Christ's words recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6, when, he, when Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We have to abide in Christ and he has to abide in us if we're going to participate in glory. Having Jesus abide in you means to embrace with both arms his death, his resurrection, and the forgiveness that he offers for your sins. This is the mystery solved. Man is reconciled to God in the body and blood of Christ Jesus. Festus says, you're mad for saying such things. Agrippa says, I'm almost persuaded. I hope you have said, I am persuaded. I embrace that Jesus for my sins. That he might abide in me. Well, finally, Paul speaks of the proclamation of this mystery. Beginning in verse 28, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also, uh, purpose also I labor, striving according to the power which mightily works within me. Paul was devoted in his life to the proclamation of the mysteries of God after his conversion. A very dramatic conversion. But he devotes himself to the proclamation of the mysteries of God. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 these words, because his, he, he sees what's happening with this proclamation. He understands uh, the complexities of men's responses to the proclamation of the truth. For the message of the cross, it cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise, Paul writes? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? These are questions we should ask too. Where are the wise? Where where are the learned? Where are the disputers of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Brethren, when we proclaim that good news to others, trust me, they will think you're mad. You know that, right? The unbeliever, they think you're mad when you talk to them about Jesus Christ. Praise God. Because what God is telling us is true. He says to the foolish, it is madness. But to those who believe, 
It's the power of God into salvation. Some of those will hear that news, that good news, and they will believe. I am not almost persuaded. I am fully persuaded that Jesus Christ is salvation to me. God's wisdom transcends man's wisdom. His wisdom is this. You, you who are my disciples, proclaim the good news, the mystery of God, and leave the results to me. That's what God tells us. Trust me in this, God says. Don't cower before men. The seeds of your words will land on various kinds of soil, some rocky soil, some shallow soil, and others on good soil. God says he will take care of the harvest. He'll determine where it falls, and he will quicken the spirits of those who are his. Just as Festus thought Paul was mad for proclaiming these mysteries of God, many will think you are mad as well. Just as Jesus was ridiculed and scorned for claiming to be the only way of salvation, many will ridicule you for saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Do not fear. God is keeping the records. Moreover, He's the one that gives the increase. It is for us to be faithful in the proclamation. It is for God to turn the hearts and the minds of men. It's not for us to persuade. God does the persuading. It's merely for us to proclaim. Do your part, and he will use that proclamation for the advancement of his kingdom. Thus, we learn three lessons from our passage today. The body of Christ, the church, must suffer for the sake of the gospel. Otherwise, we are not being conformed to the very image of Christ. Just as he was ridiculed, we will be too. And we should say, thank you. Thank you. You heard the right message. You may not agree with it, but you wouldn't ridicule me if it weren't true. Second, Christ in us is our hope for glory. We are the Gentiles, are we not? We're like Colossae. We've never met Paul. He's never visited Trinity Presbyterian Church except in his writings. And yet, he's told us that the hope of glory is Christ in us. In him alone is the mystery of reconciliation with God made manifest. And then lastly, though it seems foolishness with men to proclaim these mysteries, the proclamation of the gospel is the means by which God reconciles men to himself. He said so. It's for us to believe and act accordingly. Rather, trust in his wisdom for the expansion of his kingdom and use his means that he would be glorified on earth as he is in heaven. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we admit our impotence. Even with this great news, we can't change the hearts of men But you can, and we trust in that. We pray for courage, that we would share with 
our family members, our extended family members, this good news, the mysteries of God. And though we might be ridiculed for it again, and though we might be told that that's okay for us, but not for them, help us to be faithful to proclaim it. We don't know where those seeds are going to fall, if it's rocky ground or shallow ground or fertile ground. But you've told us to make the proclamation. Help us to be obedient. And help us to be obedient with thanksgiving. For we know that your church will be persecuted just as our Savior was persecuted for preaching good news to men. Paul was persecuted for preaching good news to men. Our forefathers in the faith often have been persecuted for the same. And even now, Father, your church is persecuted in this world for the proclamation of this mystery, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for your church, for those who are persecuted. We, we've not experienced much persecution. Oh yes, we've been ridiculed at times, but not like others in pagan lands that are so fraught with idols of destruction that the gospel is offensive to virtually everyone. Father, we pray that you would uphold your people with courage and strength. And should they be martyred for the faith, for the faith that they practice, we will rejoice that they've been conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus. And we look forward to spending eternity with those people one day. Father, we pray that You would convert many. That You would fill the church. And as we carve out a church from our congregation in northern Cincinnati and in the Wilmington area, we pray that that church would flourish, that the gospel would go forth with clarity. And we pray the same for Trinity here in Ludlow, Father, that many would come to know Jesus Christ and that we would not be afraid of the faces of men, but rather, Father, be fearful that we might not live in obedience to You and not proclaim the good news. We trust You for the increase. Help us to live by faith. Help us not to despise small beginnings. For you chose 12 men to do the work of the kingdom, and now it's multiple hundreds of millions of men and women. Help us to see that you are growing a tree, much like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree that the birds of the air swarm to. And help us to believe that you will use us in that proclamation of the good news.